Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation coaching course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. This episode's guest is Dr. Fergus Connolly. Fergus has worked at the highest levels of the Premier League, International Rugby, the NBA, NFL, NCAA and elite military units. He is currently the performance director for Michigan Football and he is also the author of a unique book, Game Changer, which was released in 2017. On this episode, Fergus and I discussed many topics, including Fergus's background and his influences, the good and not so good things that Fergus currently sees within the physical preparation profession, and what solutions he would offer for the not so good things that he has seen. Fergus talks about why asking the why behind things is critical to sports preparation. Fergus and I discuss about the importance of understanding first principles when it comes to sports performance. We discuss why an over-reliance on the development of physical qualities at the expense of other key athletic traits is a flawed model to follow. We discuss big data versus small data. Fergus discusses why all members of the sports performance staff should review the game together as a multidisciplinary team. Fergus talks about why general mental toughness models will not transfer to the specific mental skills that are needed to enhance sports performance. Fergus talks about why generalists will inherit the world in sports performance over specialists. Fergus and I discuss periodization schemes within sports performance and the importance of the weekly setup for athletic preparation. Fergus discusses the concept of synchronization 
within on-field and court performance in team-based sports. Fergus discusses why controlling the factors that can be controlled is critical to allow the athlete to have a larger adaptive reserve to adapt to the chaos of sport and to enhance the learning process. Fergus gives us his top advice and resources to all the listeners. And finally, if Fergus could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? As always, guys, this was an absolutely outstanding episode of Fergus, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Okay, Fergus Connolly, it is an absolute pleasure and an absolute honor to have you come on to my podcast. Just for the listeners who might be too familiar with who you are, Fergus, which I would imagine will be very few people, but just fill us in on your background. Oh, well, <laughs> thank, you for, uh, thank you for having me on. It's, um, it's humbling. Um, yes, uh, from, I'm from Scotstone originally, Scotstone and Monaghan, and um, I've been, I guess, working in, in sport around the world for over the last 15 years or so. So it's been, uh, it's been a little bit of a journey from uh, Premier League, international rugby, um, the NFL, college football, um, and consulted across other sports, AFL, cricket, um, and uh, and some others. So yeah, plenty of variety. I suppose like this is just me personally because like I just want to know more stuff myself. But there is going to be listeners out there, and I just want to know well, like how did you get to where you are? Because again, your background's in IT. I know that you know on some other podcasts you said you were just a crazy sports fanatic you just want to know everything about getting better at, at, at sport and you said I think in this your interview with Anthony Ren and strengthcoach.com uh, podcast you were saying that you, you traveled like around for like a 10 year period meeting all these coaches so like maybe just bring us a little more through that background like so like what what led you into like sports science physical preparation given that your background was more in computer science initially um yeah I, I I really, I really, I really hate speaking speaking about myself because, at the end of the day, um, what I guess what we do is really always about about athletes and and about um, trying to serve somebody else. But I think yes, people, you know, are interested or or do ask, how, you know, how do you? Um, actually, I was only asked recently, how does a you know a kid from a, a village in Ireland end up working with uh, you know Jim Harbaugh or working with um, you know, Warren Gatland or whoever. And, uh, I think it's, for me, it's always been just a fascination with how do you get a group of people to win and to achieve something. And, uh, sport is one vehicle. I grew up playing, uh, Gaelic football. Um, uh, grew up, um, you know, in, involved in sport and in, around some great people. And it's really just been a, a passion of mine to understand how do groups of people, teams win. And that led me, obviously, through sport, obviously, you know, some military work and whatever. But um, it's just been a, a passion and interest of mine, a hobby, so to speak, that, uh, you know, how does it how does it happen? And, you know, you meet, you know, you you meet the uh, nutritionist and they say, well, it's all to do with nutrition and it's to do with mm. micronutrients, macronutrients. You meet the biomechanist and he'll say, no, 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 no. It's, it's you know, getting gait right, getting running technique. You meet a strength coach and he, he'll say, yeah, the, all of those things are fine, but if you don't have strength in the right proportion, you're not going to go. So it keeps going like this in the search to try and find what, uh, how do teams and sports teams win or how does an elite athlete win? 
and it's very, very different from the common perception. So my journey really just took me through from, uh, uh, you know, from, from different teams originally starting with Bolton Wanderers and, uh, um, really none of it is, none of it has been ever planned. It's just been a case of, uh, I, I think I got a lesson from, uh, or, or a, a teaching point from John McCluskey, who was the RMA trainer at the time. And he said, uh, to me that if you're the best at what you do, you, you know, you don't have to worry about anything else about where your next job is going to come from. So I think that was just what I focused on, just enjoying and learning as much as I could about the different areas. And, and, you know, uh, there's another guy, Craig White, who was, Mm. The head of fitness at Leicester Tigers and he, um, that, you know, the lesson I would have learned from him was, you know, make sure it's applicable in the real world. And you just, you keep learning from great people down through, down through the years. Uh, another guy was, uh, uh, Welsh coach Phil Richards who, you know, had a huge passion for learning. There was another guy, Mark Bennett, another Welsh strength coach who yeah, yeah. himself was just, uh, you know, a, had a wonderful interest in two particular fields or a great knowledge, not just interest, but a great knowledge in, uh, power production and then, and then, uh, endocrinology. So it was, and you learn from him how to combine and maximize. So those are all of the different things that, <clears throat> you know, teaching points, if you will. Um, and, um, uh, hope, you know, I, I, yeah, it's just a, it's just a journey of passion. And I've been, you know, lucky along the way. Yeah, that kind of blends in nicely to the next question that you named Greg White there. I actually haven't heard Greg's name in a while, or Craig White, because um, he. I've heard a few people talk about him before in the past, and he, he seems to be very highly respected. And, uh, I know Phil Richards very well, and I've heard Mark Bennett on a few podcasts too before. Um, but it, as I said, this blends in nicely to the next question: is in, in terms of your influences, Fergus, who would you say have been the biggest influence on you, both personally and professionally? Personally, it's always your parents, you know, um, or, you know, and, and, and fortunately for me, it was parents. I think in this day and age, it's whoever your guardians are, people that you, uh, you grew up around. Um, I was also very fortunate to be raised in, in a place called Scottstown, which had an incredible number of, uh, very, very special people, people like Sean McKay, Porrick Duffy, and then, you know, footballers that I would have played with. I was very fortunate to be around. Um, and they had a, a great influence on me. I th- think professionally, I think, um, there are so many, uh, you know, I, I, I purposely didn't write a list of a thank yous at the front of, of my book because I was afraid I would leave somebody out, but there's just been thousands of people around the world, you know, that I've learned from, you know, uh, there's a guy called Dave Rath in Australia that, you know, most people may not know about who's, who I find to be a fascinating guy, a really, really intelligent guy. There are a number of different people in, um, military units who've, uh, you know, who are incredibly interesting people and, and very insightful. There are, th- then there's the obvious people, you know, the Dan Pops, Hank Reinhoffs, Charlie Francis, um, Louis Simmons, Charles Pollock, and there, there's, there's so many people. Um, and then on, then on the coaching side, you know, there's, you know, the Rob Harleys, um, there's, you know, even the Gatlins, um, you know, Sean Edwards, Brendan Rogers, uh, Kenny Dugleish, um, here, uh, great coaches like Joe Hastings, Jim Harbaugh, there's just, 
uh, Don Brown, who's arguably the best coach I've ever been around defensively, um, the genius, uh, Chris Partridge. There's just so many coaches as well that I've learned from. Mm. Psychologists, nutritionists, like the, the list is genuinely huge. Uh, I've been very, very fortunate to, to learn from, from some great people. And that's not even then to mention all of the, um, uh, the players, um, experienced players, young players who, prov- who provide and provide and continue to provide insight. And then there are research institutions like, um, you know, uh, the likes of NASA, some incredibly smart people that have been, again, fortunate to learn from people at Disney as well, believe it or not, um, to do movement in space. So just been very, very fortunate over the years. Something I actually haven't heard you speak about on any podcast I've listened to you talk on or any interviews, um, and it's just coming to me now, it, it strikes me that you are someone who um, finds networking extremely important and communication and just kind of broadening out that network. Where, where does that sort of drive come from to just really reach out and, and really just have a, a very broad network? Actually, that that's probably not accurate at all. Um, it it sound it might sound like that, but networking is something that that I don't do. That I'm, I'm I, I don't. It's just uh, my interest has always been trying to learn, and mm. people want to know who. But um, I, I don't. I'm I'm not a network. I don't have a list of people. I've just met people or come across people or tried to learn from teams and organizations. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm not good at that. I, I'm quite an introvert to be quite honest I, I prefer to just learn study and, and like I said like John was told me a long time ago um, to understand you know to to be good at what you do first and foremost I think in our industry I think unfortunately I think there are quite maybe people who focus more on the relationship rather than the content yeah. and at the end of the day if you can't do your job and you can't deliver it doesn't matter who you know um, but I think I've been fortunate throughout the years that um you know, if you do a good job and you're good at what you do, people, um, uh, there's always somebody out there who wants to win and who wants badly enough to win. That's what you have to remember. You always have to have faith in your ability. And, you know, people will always have opinions. But at the end of the day in sport, um, you still have to produce. That's the great thing about sport is it is a leveler. The scoreboard does filter that out. And I've always believed that and I've uh, always worked towards that. Uh, that principle. Great stuff. Well, I have a list of questions here around your book, but just before I get to that, just one final question I'll ask before we delve kind of deep <laughs> into parts of your book is, in terms of the, the good and not so good you're seeing, um, Fergus, within the uh, physical preparation of sports science professions, what, what is the good that you're seeing and what is the not so good? And with the not so good, what sort of solutions would you put forward? Yeah, the... <laughs> It's an easy question to answer in a, in a negative sense, and I, I always try to be somewhat positive because there are a lot of good people out there doing trying to do a good job. But then, on the other hand, there are a lot of um, there's a lot of misinformation, and uh, you know, people will Google an article and they'll read an article about what a team is supposed to be doing or what they're supposed to have said, and you know, or you know, I talk to one or two players on a particular team and they train this way when. You know, or uh, this player trains this way because I read it in an article, and that kind of stuff is just is a real hindrance to trying to educate people as to the, what the truth is. And it's not about um, 
a right way or a wrong way, so to speak. But if you don't start from a point of truth, well, then you're not going to go anywhere. So, for example, you know, you can take, you can say that a X player or team A, you know, trained a particular way. Well, that may or may not be the right or the wrong way, but at least let's start from exactly what they do and then decipher what the impact is. Uh, I think that's the single biggest problem, and you know, I've referred to it as fake sports science. You can call it what you want, but um, unless you see somebody training and you see what they actually do, you don't know what they're doing. Exactly. And secondly, it must be taken within a context. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've seen hundreds, as I'm sure anybody listening to this has seen hundreds and thousands of training programs written by some very, very bright people. And I can poke holes in it, or anybody could, or go, that doesn't make sense. But you you have to go and see what did they do the day before? What's the coach telling them? How are they doing the exercise? You know, uh, all of these different things before you can judge it. Um, so, and that's something that I learned. Uh, I'll never forget, for example, going to Charlie Francis. And I'd read everything he had written, spoken with, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, I'd go with 20 questions. And I came home. And somebody asked me, how did I get on? And I said, I, I went with 20 questions. I, I didn't get one single question answered. The reason was I was, I, was answer, I was asking all of the wrong questions. And that's, that's just one example. It's the same with lots of different teams um, you get. So, you know, you get people who will argue with you about whatever. I've had people argue with me about how teams I've trained have trained, and they've told me to train a completely different way. And you just, at the end of the day, you just go, whatever. Like, I mean, but you, you, it is worth, it is worth, you have to, get up off your backside and go and, and try and see what people do to learn mm. because something on paper looks completely different it's 2D it's not it's not it's not 3D and it's certainly not 4D it's not being in that experience and seeing and understanding um, Ashley Jones uh, was a well, I'm not as Canterbury Crusaders in the All Blacks but you know he's been at Edinburgh he's been all around the world he's one of the best strength coaches I've been around um, and he would happily give you and will happily give you his strength program that he's going to do tomorrow with whatever team he's with but you don't see him implemented, so you don't see the art and the skill in what he's doing. So if you were to look at it, you might, you know, you might get confused. You might not. But un- unless you are there and see him present it, see him execute it, and see the art of what he does, you don't know what he's doing. You really don't know, and you don't know what the players have done. You don't know what they can tolerate. I've seen training programs on paper that, on paper, look as though they would overtrain, you know, anybody, but that particular team or group have been developed to a, to a stage where they can tolerate that load and they win. But again, it's context, it's understanding, and it's really important when you judge somebody or judge what they do. Just take a, a minute to, to ask yourself, do you really know what it is that you're, you're judging or questioning? Yeah, that's a great point because I often say to people that a lot of criticisms are based on false assumptions and I often wonder why people just don't go straight to the horse's mouth. So you often see on forums or on Facebook, whatever, people criticizing a, a particular, whether it's an exercise video program, and it's just like, why don't you ask the individual who is implementing that particular exercise program and, and ask for the rationale, rather than coming up with criticisms that are just based on a false assumption. That's why I'm always, similar to yourself, because I'm always a huge fan of going straight to the horse's mouth, so like, in terms of like, at Altus, I went and interned at Altus, and I want to see what was going on there. With the, FM, with the FMS, I directly contacted Greg Book and had him on the podcast so I could ask him directly the questions I needed to know rather than getting second-hand information. And it's so true. You often see people saying, like, oh, this is what they're doing, they're doing here. Look, I read the book in their programs. Like, yeah, but did you see it? Because, again, like so much like changes on a moment-to-moment basis. So that might have been what was on paper, but 
that isn't necessarily what happened. And it's funny you mentioned Charlie Francis too. I've, I've heard a lot of stories about Charlie the way that a lot of stuff that had been written in the books wasn't necessarily how it always used to happen. And well, I think I, I think the, I think there's two things. I think with um, for example FMS, I think it you know I've got lots of criticism of FMS and and you know as it's presented. Yeah, sure. I wouldn't use it exactly as presented, but I would have adapted and learned from it, and that's something important. But again, that's a system, and and it's presented as such, and it's good to understand the why, the why, the why. I always I always tell people if you really want to learn, you've got to ask why, why, why three times. I do it here with our head coach. You know, he'll, you know, I he's made some changes to the schedule this week, and uh, you know, I asked him why, so that I can understand it, not just. Not just take it for granted, but I want to know why. And he's, yeah. you know, he's in that sense, he, he's brilliant in having a very good reason. And with Charlie, I think what what's important about what what he did and what what a lot of strength. What you read in a book is generally retrospective. So, you know, sometimes with the fog of time and the fog of of um, of practice, that very often um, the what's written subsequently is is not what the original program was. And it's difficult as well to get the right training program. Um, like, in other words, very few people publish the book before the race is run. Yeah. Um, so it's, that can be difficult. But again, it's asking the why, the why, the why. And even, for example, if you take something like, uh, if you take two or three strength coaches, what you find is that, or two or three sprint coaches, what you find is that they have different things and different reasons for doing it. But the effect on the body very often is, is, is similar. And, but when you ask the three coaches what they do, they'll tell you three different things. When you ask them why they do it, you find out, and you ask why, 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 you find out they're doing it for the same reason. And they're having the same effect, but they're using three different techniques. Um, and that's why from the learning perspective, that's why it, it's really important to try, don't, un- don't really focus on the, the the what. It's the how is important, but the why is the most important. Yeah, like Simon Sinek says, the why. It's uh, it, it's kind of like that Louis C.K. joke too with his daughter. He's, he has this joke about Louis C.K. the comedian, and he's like that curiosity that kids have when the daughter it was raining one day, and she's like, "Daddy, why why can't we go outside to play?" And he's like, "Cause it's raining." And she's like, "Why?" And he goes. Because clouds make it rain, and she's like, "Why?" And he goes, "That's all the information Daddy knows." And he's like, "Why?" Because Daddy didn't pay because atten- <laughs> Daddy didn't pay attention in school, and, it's- and she's like, "Why?" And he's like, "Because Daddy didn't go to school." And she's like, "Why?" Because I was high. Why, Daddy? Because I hate I hated my life because I ruined ma- your grandparents' life. So I used to rebel against him not going to school. And then why? And then he just keeps he keeps saying the he keeps going why and why and why. And he says this is on for about five minutes, and he just says, "Shut the fuck up and eat your dinner." <laughs> so but that like you know it's so important though I think that. Uh, you know, I think it, it's so important for people to spend the time trying to get to that why, and it is. It's difficult. It takes time, but you know, what do you what do you want? Do you want you know? Do you want the cure? Do you just want to do you want the cure of the cause? Or do you just want to cure the symptom? It's up to you. Yeah, understanding is key because a, a big factor in I suppose I suppose you want to call it my bias, but but how I currently see and pr- pr- currently see and perceive reality is true an appreciation for epigenetics, knowing that the environment has a huge influence on the expression of the organism and I suppose one thing about us as a human organism is that we have the capacity, the mental capacity to perceive uh, our environment so we know that we can put two people in the same situation they both have completely different perceptions of what's going on in the environment but at least just having, yeah, but- at least having an appreciation of the environment you know, allows you then to always wonder why everyone and everything is the way it is 
because everyone, everything is the way it is for a reason, and, and it kind of leads you to appreciate appreciate that you need to be asking why rather than again going on false assumptions or going straight to condemning people rather than trying to understand people's certain ways and directions. No, I, I think that's. I think it it's important to understand that we have far more control um, and our fate is not predetermined, particularly when it comes to athletics. You know, but you see that if you stay in the business long enough. You see that as well. That you see that it's never like it's never the best player early on in the career who makes it in the NFL or NBA, or very rarely. Yeah. So moving on then to uh, Game Changer, which uh, I get as I said to you, well, we emailed back and forth. I have so many, like anyone, even mountain of books. And this year, actually, I said to myself, you know, what? I'm not getting any more books until I read the books I have. So like, I've got like. Right here beside me, I have anatomy, physiology, and I'm re-going through with the triphase again. I'm actually, and I'm coming through super train as well as doing my biomechanics for my masters here. So I have a lot, but I've listened to a lot of, uh, as I said, podcasts again, and I've picked up some bits and pieces that I'd like to ask you about. So I have very good friends with James Smith, the Tinker, who I know you're aware of. I don't know if you've ever communicated, but I know James well. I usually communicate with him about once a month. And uh, he often talks about, you know, understanding the uh, importance of first principles. And from what what I can gather from Game Changers, you talk about this first principles in all sports, and you kind of delved into one of the key aspects is to always creating space. And that was the one key thing you saw across all sports. Um, can you maybe just maybe touch into some of these f- first principles that you think are connected to all sports? Yeah, James is James is a great guy, and I would I would hate to suggest that that what I've written is. It goes to first principles <laughs> to the degree that that his does. Uh, I've never written on the, and I would never be capable of writing a book on the on the flight mechanics of a football. But he can, and he's, you know, <laughs> he, he he has an incredible depth of knowledge. Um, what I've tried to do, essentially, where this happened was I was I worked across you know many many field sports, including Gaelic football, um, and you, what you what you realize are that the, the principles behind the games are the exact same as the creation of space it's by timing sequencing yeah. um, you start to and the, there is the reason I wrote the book is that there, was, there were two reasons but one of the, the second reason the main reason was that um, there is no other book out there like it that looks across the, the team the game the athlete as a whole and I wanted to outline to coaches to strength coaches or to athletic professor or whatever the title they want to call themselves now and to teach to uh, team coaches, skill coaches, that the principles were common and had to be uh, viewed uh, by both sides because you've got areas like skill act that go off and create a silo on its own about skill acquisition. Well, look, skill acquisition doesn't work in isolation. It has to be developed in context and it has to be developed with the fitness component combined as well. Well, it doesn't have to be. You can try and do it in isolation, but you have to develop athletes as a whole. And this idea of, you know, uh, insecure egos, just building silos and trying to create importance for themselves. It's about winning games, about the development of an athlete. So the the the, the aim of the book was to to identify and isolate the principles that were common to, to kids running around the field with a ball or with a frisbee or whatever whatever it might be, so that we can develop these young kids the whole way up, the whole way up from a very small uh, a, a very small age a very small level of of ability the whole way up because at the end of the day the difference between you know two groups of kids kicking a ball around a a street uh somewhere in dublin this evening and uh messi and ronaldo in front of 70 80 thousand is simply 
the, 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 the level of technique, the skill level, but the speed of the game is the primary one. But apart from that, the principles still remain the same about circulation, ball circulation, man circulation, the sequence and timing, the relationship. These things are common. They're common to all sports. Another uh, point I've heard you speak about a lot, and actually this rings true to myself because this is something I've often spoke about, is this sort of over... Suppose reliance and measurement on the physical um, development of athletes, rather than having more appreciation for the technical, tactical, mental, and cognitive aspects, and kind of always defaulting to a physical capacity issue at the heart of poor performance, and because it's just kind of it's it's an easy sort of aspect to blame. I think you know the strength coach usually is the first person to blame. I always use the kind of joke of. You, you, you'd appreciate this because obviously being a fellow Irishman and being aware of Gaelic games and the fact that I've worked and you've worked in Gaelic games, like, you know, when a team's not playing well, the first thing the manager says is, the lads aren't fit. And you're, you're kind of thinking, what objective measure are you basing that off? Like, how, how do you know they're not fit? Like, how do you know it's not like it, it's a fatigue issue? How do you know it's not because the tactical setup of the, the game plan is not right for this team? Like, how do you know it's not, a, again, a mental preparation aspect? Like they just all seem to default back to a physical aspect because it seems to be just the easiest thing to pinpoint. But can you maybe get into uh, your thoughts on too much emphasis on physical development and, and measurement of it too, and not enough on the technical, tactical, and, and mental aspects? Yeah, it happens time and time again. You know, and I've I've had this conversation with a number of head coaches. You know, you know if you concede a goal in the last ten minutes, or you concede three or four points to to lose a game. Uh, you know, it's not because the team necessarily were unfit. It may be that the fatigue of a poor uh, structure or system or, or, you know, tactical model, you know, meant that your team were run off their feet in the first 30, 40 minutes and just didn't have the energy to complete the game. That could be very easily it. it it's not, it's to do with the efficiency and the effectiveness of what you do. Um, there's so many myths about um, games that, that I address in the book, but, you know, the, the idea that the teams who run the most are the, are the, the fittest that are, or there is a correlation between high speed running and winning. It's just nonsense. Correlation between the number of sprints and winning. No, the, there's a correlation between a high score and the scoreboard and winning. That's what there's a correlation with. There's a correlation with a very effective attack and a very good defense. There's a very high correlation with that and winning. So it's not about physical qualities and the idea that, you know, GPS to some degree has just sped up this uh, myth that um, teams who run the most or the fittest are going to win. It's the complete opposite. The irony is that the more efficient you play, and by efficient I mean you can have, you can be effective but costing you less energy, you appear fitter. So you can do that, you can do, uh, more work with less energy and defeat your opponent. That's the goal. That's what we all want to do in life. Um, I had a conversation with, uh, John Kavanagh, uh, um, Conor McGregor's coach about the very same thing with MMA fighters and with uh, with boxers. When one switches to the other, the energy demands on them, not because they're physically challenging, more challenging, but the cognitive demands, the stress, the the fact that the person who is in the sport that they haven't been brought up in is trying to compute far more combinations of processes that is just mentally draining. The nervous system becomes fatigued. Fatigued, it's far more difficult for them to, to fight in that, even if the energy expenditure is far less. So, and this is a, a mistake across Gaelic football. It's been very, very common. You see it time and time again where teams just uh, rely on, on fitness solely to 
to execute. And you, in order to beat a team of equal uh, ability, skill wise, you you uh, or better than you, you must be significantly fitter. And I don't remember a team in recent memory. I, the last team I remember that really used fitness as the key component was back in '93 in Derry with the Derry team. But it, for the most part, the best footballing teams win win football games. Yeah, because I, I remember um, I met up with Mickey Whelan one time. Mickey obviously was involved with Dublin when they won the All Ireland senior football fight in 2011 and one thing he said to me that day was if you were to take you know the he basically kind of said if you were to take the top three or four uh, senior county football teams in Ireland and then like match their physical capabilities against like more of the sort of you know the next eight to ten top competing teams he's like there'd be very little difference in their physical capacities he's like what what's what makes them different is that the top teams can just execute their technical and tactical uh, outputs at just uh, at more with more precision, with more pace, with more power. It's just basically their their skill acquisition is really is what's separate, and their technical tactical awareness and game plans, not so much their physical capabilities. And he's like too well, much too too much yeah, being put on their physical aspects. Yeah, the, well, I would go further as to say if you take the top four teams, that the unfittest team. Is arguably the, very often the best team. Uh, there's no correlation. There's no distinction mm, between mm. fitness and winning. <clears throat> the it's the ability to execute under pressure, and it's the the ability to execute whether defensively or offensively under pressure. The 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 final point is at the highest level when you get to the top four teams, it's not the teams who can do the most or do the the best that succeed. It's the teams that make the fewest mistakes, execute. What they have always done time and time again. So if you get to an All Ireland final and you, you, you know, you miss shots on goal, you miss free kicks. Well, you know, you, that's where your failure is. That's where your your inability to execute under pressure is. That's that's what the distinction is. It's it's you're not you're nobody goes out in whether it's a you know a conference final in the NFL or whether it's a Big Ten championship uh, here in college football and is going to do anything that they've not done before. They're not going to do it. You do exactly what you've done before. You just do it quicker and faster than your opponent can stop you. And your opponent knows what you're going to do. It's it's the very same thing. But you, it's the team that makes the fewest mistakes at the highest level, particularly in finals, that succeed. Yeah, uh, you give a really good example too about like the famous uh, uh, old school um, Russian ice hockey team, and you were saying that again. It's kind of like. A lot of people used to be in awe of their physical capabilities, but like you kind of alluded to, yeah, but no one really appreciated that they were savagely skillful and they had massive technical tactical awareness too. That seems to be a case with a lot of the top teams as well. Like, I mean, a lot of people talk about the strength and the power of the All Blacks. It's like, yeah, but look at their like actual skill as well in their game. It's they have, you know, they're they're brilliant too technically and tactically. It's not just this physical component that separates them. Yeah, but I'm not. I don't want to comment too much about the about the All Blacks and when it comes to strength and power. But you know, it it's a myth to suggest that they're that they're stronger than, than oh, yeah, anybody anybody else. It's the complete that, that, inverse. That, that's what I'm getting honest. to. Yeah, that's what I'm but getting at. But the efficiency of performance gives the impression that they're that yeah. they're, it, take yeah. take. Take any Gaelic football team that you know. Take the most successful football team of the last few years. It's not, nothing to do with strength of power. It's the efficiency of movement. It's the efficiency and the synchronicity. If you go back to Tarasov and the the, the the Russian ice hockey team, which you know again, you know people watch a team move and they think that it's to do its speed. But what they're following is they're following the speed of the puck, not the speed of the man. And when you follow them, when you follow individual players, and you watch their movement. 
they actually move slower. But because the group appears to move fast and the puck moves fast, people think that the team's moving fast. They're actually far, they're cost using far less energy, but they're far more efficient because they've got good tempo and synchronicity. And the synchronicity is the key. And this is where in elite teams, the ability to, to move in, in, uh, in a cohesive movement, uh, to synchronize movement as a team, that is that that at its peak is is beautiful. Uh, it's absolute beauty. So next thing I want to move on to, I found this really interesting, and I thought it was an excellent point. Is you kind of stated that you like to give like a, an ABC ranking um, for a particular sort of measure. Uh, you were talking about it's not just important to have quantitative measures, but to also have a qualitative measure. You kind of gave the examples of like you know if someone like breaks a record in 100 meter or sprint, but they they ran sort of in a sloppy manner or if they just, if they executed a particular, a particular result, but yet there was a lot of room for improvement from a qualitative standpoint. Can you maybe just t- touch on that, that it's not just only the quantitative we want to look at? Yeah. So the, the comp, you must have, in, in summary, you must have a quantitative and qualitative assessment of any, any performance. So mm. let's say we're talking about um, shots on goal or we're talking about somebody kicking free, you know, free kicks or whatever it might be. Um, to truly improve, you can't just simply count whether or not they got 10 out of 10, 9 out of 10, or 2 out of 10. That's fine. That gives you an idea of the actual uh, the output. That's quantitative. But the qualitative is is far more insightful because it tells you whether or not they were close or not, whether or not they, whether or not, for example, let's say you've got a, an accomplished free taker who uh, consistently hits 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10. But what you're not, what you're not recording though is the fact that his kicks are actually getting weaker. So over the five days leading up to a final, his kicks are getting over but they're dropping short or mm. that they're just scraping over. Well, if you don't do that, you don't know what to improve or they're, uh, you know, so it's, you must have both the quantitative and qualitative. You don't, you're not able to spot injury. So, Purely looking at the output only is fine in terms of the result because at the end of the day, it's kill or be killed. At the end of the day, it's get the result or don't. But to improve, to avoid complacency and to, to avoid both complacency and to uh, avoid pessimism and to, to avoid the negativity, you must do both. You must have the quantitative and qualitative. It's incredibly important. Now, you can do it any way you want. ABC, 1 to 10, whatever way, but it must have a quantitative and qualitative because otherwise you're, you know, you're not really identifying or you're not able to uh, identify where the room for improvement and true improvement is. So next thing I want to touch on then is, is this idea of uh, data. You know, and you've kind of spoken about this uh, on the episode with Doug Teachin on his podcast, and this concept of it's easy to collect but harder to know what to do with data. So I, I suppose everyone's talking about data these days. So maybe just touch on your ideas around this. Well, yeah, like I mean, you can take three, three, and three. You can take, you know, uh, you know, two, four, and three, or you can take. Uh, you know, uh, two and seven, they all add up to nine, but they all mean completely different things if you're looking at it from a data perspective. And the average of all of those ends up being three as well. So it's what it's using data and using numbers in, in an intelligent way. There are two main problems with a lot of what we collect. First of all, 
we're provided with a lot of data that actually doesn't mean anything. It's not, it's just numbers for the sake of numbers. So, but again, uh, total distance run, total distance run in a game is directly relation, is in direct proportion generally to what your opponent ran. So if you play Barcelona or you play Bayern Munich, you, you're going to run more against one, you're going to run less against the other. Um, it, you may run 10% more, you may run equal, but it's in relation to your opponent. Um, and people have to remember that, you know, a game is, uh, you know, a game is like a, is like a dance. Um, you know, there are always going to be two people in it. And it's like the old joke about, um, you know, if you're playing against a good opponent, it, it is, it's like, uh, you know, why was Ginger Rogers, uh, a far better dancer than Fred Astaire? Well, she had to do everything he did, but do it backwards and in heels. So if you're playing a very, very good team, you have to beat them. You have to be able to do everything that they're able to do, but you have to be able to, to counter them and to execute. And, and this is why, the gathering of data is important, but it's identifying what the important aspects are, the important variables are. Because if you don't and you get distracted and you, you, you start to focus on the wrong things, you will beat the opponent, but you will beat them in the wrong areas. So this idea of I need to run more than my opponent to beat them, well, it's just nonsense because if that's not the key determining factor, you're focusing on something that's not important. So you need to work backwards from the key Performance indicators identify what they are uh, and beat the team, beat the opponent on on those qualities. Yeah, great stuff. So uh, another really interesting concept you um, that you brought up was this uh, this idea of study the game and that all members of really the manager, the backroom team should study the game together. You, you kind of get the example on and the podcast on the arena that the strength coach should actually sit down with the sports coach and watch the game, and that's where they can critically analyze where the weaknesses are within a particular individual or in the team as a whole. So maybe just touch on that. I thought that was, that was a very good point. And, and again, it kind of speaks to like bringing the, 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 the sort of management team together more as an interdisciplinary team rather than these separate silos. Yeah, so you know, one of the, the, the biggest problems that you have with strength coaches at the minute is, particularly in game day, they will... Um, be rushing around, getting teams warm, getting players warmed up. The you know they'll run with water. They'll you know be on the side end warming up, but they don't actually watch the game, or they don't watch the game to the degree that they could. And then post game, they're doing rehab or they're doing an extra fitness session. So over the next day or two, that's generally their downtime when they get a little bit of rest. In reality, your performance, your athletic performance, individual, whatever, again, whatever title, strength coach, fitness coach, they really should be watching the game hand in glove with the positional coach or with the skill coach or with the offensive, defensive coach, whatever it is, so that the identification, the common language is used. In other words, you know, to counter this idea that we weren't fit enough or to counter the idea that this guy's not strong enough to identify truly and honestly and openly what the issues are with each player, to go through each piece of film and to see, okay, why were, you know, was he out of, was he out of position because he wasn't fit or was he out of position because he didn't know, know where he should have been? Or was he out of position because he just didn't react quick enough? What is, what are the reasons? Was he out of position because he wasn't concentrating? So identify what the key, uh, what the limiting factor is in that instance and fix it. But the only way that that can be done is, is if the profession, the, the performance professionals are watching the same thing at the same time using the same language and coming up with the same cause the same solution and then going fi- fixing it so it's that brutal honesty and ruthlessness and fixing the problems that will determine how quickly you can improve 
Yeah, that's great stuff. And just, what was the next question I was going to ask? Although it was just about to ask questions. I was like, I don't know what I want to ask. I was going to flip through my notes there. Well, I have plenty of, not, plenty of questions to ask anyway, so no, no uh, worry now. Just in, um, I'll, I'll go to the psychological ones. This is one I do want to ask. You, you often get people talking about like mental toughness and, and, you know, trying to build mental toughness. And they'll often like, look to other domains so I think one area you kind of touched on is a lot of people look to the military domain and they'll try and take the concepts of their psychological toughness from the military and then try to apply it to their specific situation or whatever sport they're in and you make a great point that listen like the, the psychological needs to a sport are no different than like the physiological needs to a sport they're specific so trying to take psychological means and methods from one domain and try to apply it to another is just as flawless as trying to take the physiological means and methods from one domain or sport and trying to apply it to another. So I thought that was very interesting. Maybe you could just want to, to touch on some of the flawed concepts around this mental toughness and trying to use models from other areas and then implement them then into unsuited areas within sport. I think that um, I, what you realize over time, and people will disagree with me on this, I, I don't have a problem with it. Uh, I generally don't, don't have a problem with people disagreeing with me anyway, but... Uh, when it comes to particularly resiliency and, and mental toughness in sport, it is specific to that event because it's always specific to, um, you know, people will do and they'll bring in different speakers and that, but the specificity of performance is incredibly important. And that's, I'm not one of these sports specific guys, but what I'm saying is the ability to execute a skill under pressure can only be practiced by executing that skill under pressure. Yes, I can bring, you know, I can improve general resilience and people can do resilience training and they can feel more calm or more whatever it is, more focused, blah, 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 the day to day. Yes, because you took them out of the, out of their environment, you train them in a particular way and then you observe them out of their environment and say, wow, haven't they improved their focus? But they're not going to improve it on the field because on the field or in the event, it's a completely different, different set of circumstances. The other key point behind this and behind improving athletes are it's best to try and improve the athlete as a whole in their environment where all of the um, variables and all of the qualities are present, even to some degree. So think of it like playing a piano. If all of the keys are there, I can emphasize certain ones when I need to, but in the context, in the environment, in the terrain of all of the, the other ones that need to be present. And that's what's very, very important about, about improving athletes is improve them in their environment so that they can apply it quicker within that same environment and they have a context, they have a reference point for it. Uh, that's, what's, that's what's incredibly important about improving athletes. The other point is that Athletes who've developed habits psychologically over time, they've done it in this terrain. So it's easier to fix it. They can apply, you can apply pressure, you can apply stress on an athlete, you can remove stress, you can make them more relaxed in their environment playing the game. So it's easier for them to translate the learning from one to the other. That's mm. what's, that's what's important. Something you touched on that resonates with me is this concept of person first and athlete second and Something you spoke about as well um, was this sort of, there's a perception that, you know, if you're only a high school coach or a college coach, that you're at a certain disadvantage with how much impact you can have on your athletes when compared to maybe like a professional setup or organization. And it kind of nearly, and then you just, you, you know, you said you disagreed with this. You felt, you felt that the high school coach or the, the, the collegiate coach or somebody who's in, you know, a, a setting where they, they, they mightn't have the same technology or facilities or just the general setup of a professional organization that they're probably nearly at an advantage because 
they nearly had to take more control over the whole situation, therefore can have more impact on the young athlete uh, presenting front of them. And it, it kind of reminded me of this sort of interview that I've often heard like with uh, with uh, Jack White from the White Stripes, and I've heard the concept too from other people of this sort of like constra- constraints, like having more constraints actually leads you to be more creative. So it's nearly as if, like, when you ha- have more constraints, so in going back to, like, the high school coach, uh, you can nearly have more profound effect on that athlete as a, as a person first. So can you maybe just touch into this concept, person first, athlete second, and and then the, the sort of mis- misperception that, you know, just because you're in a setting that doesn't have all the bells and whistles of a professional one, that you have any less, if not maybe, uh, probably you have more of an impact on your athletes than, than you would in a professional setup. Yeah, I'm probably going to be the first athletic performance person to, to quote Eamon Dunphy, but he said once that in order to have success in football in any country, you needed poverty and a, and a dictatorship. Um, and probably for, for similar reasons that you outlined, if you've got that hunger and you've got very little else to do, you've got that drive and, and you can force kids, not force kids, but kids become enthusiastic and want to learn. But in when you look at what professional means in terms of sport is it means that there's more money available. It doesn't necessarily mean that, that it's better. It just means there is more money, but most of that money ends up going to coaches and going to players. The biggest disadvantage that professional teams have is time. Uh, in this environment at college and the pros, you don't have a lot of time to do anything else other than take care of the athletes. So your ability to introduce new technologies, your ability to stay up to date becomes very much hampered. And when I worked as a consultant and any of the consultancy work I do, ends up being providing training and education to coaches who are already up to their eyes in terms of time and just need somebody that can come in and keep them up to date with what's happening. Uh, that's where the greatest demand is on uh, at that level. Mm. The other problem at the pros and at, at you know, at the, I'll use the term professional, but is that there are far more silos. So there are far more specialists, but there are very, very few generalists. And the generalists are are the ones who will inherit the earth because they're the ones who have the greatest adaptability. You know, go back to Darwin. It's your ability to adapt that will, um, it's, 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 it's your ability to adapt that will determine how, how often and how frequently you can continue to win. That's what's important in, in sport today. So the generalists are, are, end up being able to manage more and more things and they see the problem quicker. To use the old phrase, if the only thing that you have in your toolbox is a hammer, well, everything looks like a nail. Well, there's lots of different, in in a professional setting very often, there's lots of different people with lots of different toolboxes, but they all just have a different type of hammer. And if you're not able to identify that it's a screw, well, nobody's going to be able to fix the problem. So that's why it's that's why generalists um, have a huge advantage. And if you're working at a lower level, now obviously there's a point where if you're, you know, a lot of restrictions, it's hard to learn. But if you work across a, a certain level, your skill set needed is incredibly broad, and your ability to solve problems, to identify what the real problem is, and solve it. To go back to to the very first thing that I said. You know, if you're only a nutritionist, well, every problem you're going to try and solve with yeah. food, supplements, whatever. If you're a biomechanist, you're only going to try and solve problems biomechanically. And if you try and, you know, veer into strength and conditioning, you're not knowledgeable enough in the area to be able to apply the principles properly. But the generalist, the one who understands a little bit about all of the areas, is actually nine times out of ten better at identifying the problem. And if they've got a self-learning ability, uh, a quality, they can find the solution quicker than somebody who's only a specialist in one area. 
<clears throat> so the problem that they face is very often not being able to identify the problem correctly, not the solution. It's the problem. Or once, and and it, it, that's the that's what I've found to be uh, the greatest difference between successful coaches and and unsuccessful coaches is their ability to to understand uh, or to 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 read across all of the different areas. You know, it's uh, it's timely that you kind of brought up this concept of gen a generalist versus a specialist because it was a question I was going to ask, but it's something I've mentioned on the podcast a few times with other guests. In that, it, it it almost seems like a paradox, but nearly everyone who's a master of their craft. So w- what I mean by that is that they, they're known to be a specialist in a particular area, but when you like get, to get, get when you get to know them and get to know their background, you realize that underneath their their mastery in their in their particular field is this massive base of of uh, of generalism. So, like that, at, at their heart, they actually are a generalist, and and they built their uh, specialty on top of this broad foundation, um, that is a general foundation. So, like they they're as they are generalists, and 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 the fact that they are a generalist has allowed them to be more uh, specialized in their in their particular craft that they've mastered. So. Like the likes of a Dan Pfaff, for instance, who, you know, you mentioned Dan, he seems to yeah. be a specialist within the track and field world. But yet, when you speak to him, you realize, holy shit, he's a generalist at heart because he can just like rattle off information and knowledge in so many different domains. Same like with a, with a Sue McMillan or a Pat Davidson, who's, who's a, a coach out of New York. Um, the, the, one, so, the one point, though, that I would make, and you're absolutely right, I mean, you know, there, there's so many of them, like, and Dan is. Wonderful example. The, the one one point I would make, though, is that in those cases, <coughs> excuse me, in some of those cases, I think Dan would admit to this himself, is that he realized the importance of being a generalist as his career developed because he realized, and he was incredibly uh, humble, and that's mm. the key point. It, the, the humility is critical to being able to uh, identify that you do need to to. Uh, you know, broaden your horizon. And unfortunately for some coaches, it comes or it doesn't come at all. You know, it takes forever, um, for, for it to appear. But I think that, you know, I think Dan is a, is a wonderful example of how having a, a broader perspective and openness to, uh, performance and to different areas allows his skill set, his specialist skill set be applied succinctly and clinically, surgically to what it needs to, to where it needs to be. Uh, directed, and that's what that's again. That's going back to my point is that Dan can identify problems better, and he won't himself personally fix them all, but he can identify them better because of the breadth of his knowledge. And that's where you know that's where that's one of the the, the failings or the the shortcomings of of coaches uh, you know to 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 date. Do you think then in the high performance <coughs> mo- the, the high performance model that the the person who is in charge of the, you know, the sports performance department needs to be someone who is a generalist. So, you know, the, the person at the top is somebody who can speak the language of the strength and coach, the sports medicine staff, the sports coach, and the sports science staff. Do you think that that's the way the organizations are kind of going and that the head person is that sort of a generalist? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the successful ones are, definitely. Yeah, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, I think that if they, those who are... The, the the people who facilitate, not necessarily manage, uh, because I I don't believe that you I don't believe that successful one, successful ones, you know high performance directors or whatever you want to call them actually manage. What they do is they can facilitate um, teams better, and that's what they're that's what, uh, facilitate 
experts and specialists better. And not all of them have to be in-house. That's the other point to, to be made, that some of them can be external. But the ability to facilitate and ensure that there's a deliverable is what they're good at. Now, uh, the difficulty arises in that they don't need to be necessarily experts in the area, but they need to understand enough about it to be able to direct, just like we spoke about, clinically direct the services to achieve the outcome. Uh, the, the, the alternative is to have a huge backroom staffs, which many teams have, but it's incredibly costly. Uh, it ends up chewing up a lot of money, and it, there are a lot of egos to be managed. So um, the, the high-performance models are going to change over time mm. because many, many teams are losing far too much money in employing specialists and experts who are not delivering regularly uh, and not delivering enough quantity or, or uh, to, to, to the team for, for, the, for, what they, for what they're being paid. But that's not to say the specialists aren't important. It's just how they are used and ensuring that they're used efficiently. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of similarities between your thought, your thoughts, and the concepts that James Smith writes about, about in his dyna, um, governing dynamics of um, or his dynamic. Oh, my book title's gone in my head there now. I'll check before I go. The governing dynamics of of, of coaching. Um, just, I, I'm going to touch on periodization with you and also uh, there's just another concept about, um, you kind of spoke about, it was very interesting, we won't get into it yet though, but the concept of like when a team is kind of having to play back-to-back games and then they come up against the team who's maybe had a week off and everyone's expecting the team to have the week off to be fresher and would potentially have an upper hand, but they actually get beaten by the team who's been on the road who you think would have more fatigue, and you were kind of talking about because people are generally looking at through the physical means where the team who've been playing repeatedly, they're more in sync with each other in terms of like their awareness and their tactical and technical and, and their cognition and their style of play. So like the team that had the rest for like say a week on the game, they're more disjointed and rusty if you want to call it that, which I found is a very interesting concept. So I'm going to ask you just to comment on that in a second, but just one thing while I remember here, just going back to your, your four coactive model, you gave the example of Tom Brady where, again, you, you were saying that, uh, just because I meant to bring this up earlier, you know, so going back to that physical, technical, tactical, and mental, you know, we spend so much time kind of on the physical, and, and like, Tom Brady's a perfect example of saying that physically, he's, like, he's not terrible, but he's not great, but he makes up for it in so many ways because technically, tactically, mentally, those other qualities are so superior, and he kind of can compensate then for his not as good physical components as, like, other players that he play against him. What kind of also comes to my mind is Jamie Clark, the footballer from Armagh, like he's so good, but yeah. So you, you can be like a great football player, but not a great athlete. And conversely, you could also be a great athlete and not be a great football player, football is your sport. So it's, mm-hmm. trying, to, it's trying to understand that to, to work in your weaknesses. On, on the Doug Cheatham podcast, you spoke about like guys who like just will constantly work on their strengths. You get to the football players who are great athletes and they're strong, so they just always go in and lift weights if they have a choice between doing weight training or practicing their weakness, like some ball handling skills. So Maybe just t- touch on that because it's something I always talk about. This idea of it's uh, the way I see it is it's kind of general physical preparation versus specific physical preparation. Kind of you know if we want to just put it in a very easy to understand manner that you can get people who from a general from a general physical standpoint they're in great shape, but from a from a specific physical standpoint they're not. Their technical, tactical, sports skills need to be brought up more. And conversely, you can also have that the other end where you have someone who's really skillful in their sport domain. We have from a GPP or just a life development standpoint, they're poor and they need to spend more time in that, in that domain. Just uh, before I let you talk on that too, it seems to me too that the more kind of 
the more there is a, the, a skill, a really defined skill element to a sport, the more a player can nearly get away with being poorly developed from an athletic standpoint if they are very skillful at their sport. Uh, yes, and, and it is position specific, but you know, look at you know, uh, um, you know, history's full of you know players who could have been a little bit fitter, you know, arguably sorry by observation, and, uh, but had great skill or great ability, and you know, uh, you know, uh, compensated for a lack of speed or apparent lack of speed or whatever, and, and were able to. To execute and win, and then you know we can all point out lots of athletes who are super fit, but just can't. Teams actually have been super fit, but just can't kick the ball over the bar, put in the net. So, but you know, again, it, it's just really it comes back to just a brutal honesty. What does it take to win a game? Uh, are you and work backwards from the results? Uh, but unless you look at all of those qualities, unless you address all those qualities simultaneously, you're not you're not going to to get an answer. So in other words, if the if the head coach only sits down with the fitness guy and only tries to address issues and problems that they seem to have on the football field with the fitness coach, all your solutions are going to be fitness solutions. You sit down with the psychologist, well, everything's going to be psychologically, you know, you know, psychology solutions or vice versa or skill act or whatever you want to call it, whatever the, the the phrase of the day is. So it's it's incredibly important that there's a holistic approach to, to the improvement of the athlete and that's the only way that you can uh, solve uh, you know solve the problems properly and efficiently. Great stuff. And just for my own sanity, the governing dynamics of coaching is the name, <laughs> is the name of James Lane's book. And it's, a great, it's a great, it's a great book. James is a oh, great guy, very smart guy. It's fantastic, but he, he'd fucking kill me if I didn't say that right. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's just that. I always, because it, it has that little, that little, uh, you know, that's the main title, and then it has the little, the little preface title underneath, the Unified Theory of Sports Preparation. So I'm always getting confused if sports coaches in the main title or not, but it's like the Government Dynamics of Coaching, a Unified Theory of Sports Preparation. But it's a fantastic book, and again, there's a lot of similarities between your top process, your top processes, and James's top processes with regards to, uh, you know, this whole concept of sports preparation. Yeah, well, you should hear some of the conversations we have. James and I have spoken about recording them. And I, 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 I can imagine. I've, I've had James on the podcast before four times now, and, and we speak at least once a month, so I, I, I can imagine. But uh, I love speaking to him because, as I always say to him, every time I, uh, every time like I finish a conversation with James, I always have way, way more questions than I have answers, and uh, but in a good way. Um. So, uh, finishing up here, Fergus, we want to be respecting your time, and we said the hour, so maybe we can squeeze this in, and again, if you have to jump off, you can jump off. But with, with periodization, you know, again, like, I think this just gets, like, it's common sense here. Like, people are, like, people are like well, you can't have a static periodization problem, we know that. And other people are like, you can't be airy-fairy and no plan, we know that. It's kind of somewhere in between. So, kind of points I've heard you say is, you know, you think it's a good idea for kind of athletes to stay close to their best mini-peaks, um, you know, you're saying that's a traditional old school one peak Olympic model doesn't really apply to sports model. Uh, we know that. You, you gave a good sort of example of like kind of considering more of the weekly cycle, so kind of week to week cycles and micro cycle setup. And you gave the kind of um, reason for this because it's it's good for you know having a weekly pattern, a weekly setup, and also kind of how it affects our regular lives outside of our sports. So you give a great analogy of. You know, the girlfriend, the wife knows, right, he's home Wednesday evening, every evening, I know that. So you were talking about, like, this life aspect as well to the weekly setup, which a lot of people don't consider when it comes to periodization. Mm-hmm. 
no, I think, and to go back to you know the, what you touched on earlier about the teams that teams who are in a cycle and who are in a rhythm and who are in a pattern have a far greater chance of winning the next day because they just have to repeat the same pattern. They follow yeah. the pattern. There's a people don't appreciate the cognitive stress that that happens when something new comes on board. So, for example, you know people talk about habits and uh, uh, traditions and what's the superstitions. <laughs> well, the reason for the superstition is it brings somebody back to. Uh, a comfort zone where yeah. this is what they've always done. This is this is the reason that's important. So you know people laugh at why they eat the same food, um, but it's it's so it, it's important so that they can uh, understand uh, or they can fall into the pattern. So they don't have to worry about the things that are not important. So the teams that are in this pattern of winning, pattern of or even playing games, playing games, playing games, and come up against a team who've had a rest for two weeks are very often at an advantage if it's chosen to be viewed and used like that. If it's not, if they don't, and if they try and do something different then for the big game, then that's when they usually you know, mess things up and, and create too much stress, create, create too much hype. But yes, traditional periodization, traditional linear periodization with one single peak is absolutely a waste of time for team sports. Like, yeah, it does, you know, somebody was trying to argue with me, it works. Well, yeah, everything works or can work, and there's always one exception. And but unless you know what somebody's doing, you know, it's you're smarter not to comment on exactly what they're doing. The teams that have had the most success in team sport are those who have a proper system of play, uh, have a proper pattern, and continuously continue to improve. And their block periodization works a little bit better in, t- in sports like rugby in the uh, in the NFL. But uh, a tactical periodized approach with a morpho cycle, which is really not Periodization in in sense is more programming, and that's the term I prefer prefer to use. It's agile programming, and by programming, what I mean is that you've got something that you do, and you change on a day to day to day basis. You've got a global plan, but really, it's it, you do it on a week to week basis. It makes the most sense biologically, socially, and physically, and certainly competition wise as well. Can you finally and maybe just touch on as well that this concept then of you, like, kind of touched on it there a little bit, like teams being in sync again. So kind of going back to that weekly pattern too, which you were saying, like teams being in sync from a, from a playing standpoint and um, when they come up against a team maybe, because you've often seen this in the All-Ireland Championships where like you get a team who won a provincial title and then a team coming through the back door and then a team coming through the back door like kicked the shit out of the team that won the provincial title because the team who won, won the provincial title had this like six-week wait until the semi-final. And a lot of, and like, you know, that's definitely not a fitness thing. That has to be more of a playing together, technical, tactical aspect. Because again, like, in terms of fitness or physical components, there'd be little to no difference between the team. So maybe just like speak about an, more of an appreciation for that. Yeah, like, yeah, like, I mean, it's, it's, you know, when you, when you sit down and think about it, the team that has had a period of rest hasn't had to play at a, at, at a heightened state of, of performance for a period of time. Secondly, yeah. they haven't had, perform on a particular day so very often what happens is people don't do it for six weeks they try and then perform execute something on one given day when they haven't practiced executing in the period before that so it 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 baffles me that people think that it's an advantage to rest for that period of time the other big difference the other big you know people people don't see is they don't see the value of having a sizable squad whereby you can play 15 against 15 it's incredibly important and do it regularly uh and then the other team that's had to go through the back door over a period of time and compete against each other 
The advantage that they've had is they've started to develop the synchronicity. So you see this best in, believe it or not, in improvisation. So if you speak with artists who've had to work uh, improvising performance, it's to do with the ability to understand telepathically, for want of a better term, uh, the ability to communicate non-verbal communication. So when you play with each other over a period of time, that becomes better, becomes more informed, and people start to understand each other better. That's why the Chicago Bulls, <clears throat> over a period of time, ha- had an advantage because they played 72 games a season at that time or whatever it was. It's So it's there is an advantage to playing more frequently so long as the rest and recovery is properly cycled. There's a disadvantage to long periods. Rest alone does not does not help. Yeah, and you, uh, so, you often see that with tapering too. Like you know, you get people who, like some people, like Dan Fastings with that. You know, like a whole day's rest. When I, maybe this is maybe more so to do with the uh, physiology of the body more so than the you know the cognitive tactical awareness of a team sport. But you often do see that the tapers can be a negative thing on some people in terms of kind of down regulates the system. So I can see the same thing happening then with the synchronization of team play as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I mean, you, you have to be incredibly important. Uh, like I mean, incredibly careful when you come to tapering because, and again, tapering doesn't happen in team sports. You know, these are mm-hmm. these are Olympic terms that are being yeah, used, exactly. not to be pedantic, but it, you know, to be argumentative. But there, it, it's not a tapering per se. You might have a, at best a two week taper if you want to call it such. But what we're talking about is the ability to remain in a state of excitation. So can you deliver? Can you recover? The other point that is incredible that people don't appreciate is the body learns how to recover and it learns to yeah. recover within short periods of time if you do it. If you, if you practice recovering in short periods of time, then your body gets used to it. So the body learns how to recover it. The body's incredibly adaptable uh, and we underestimate it, you know, to, to, at our own expense. Yeah, with regards to recovery, you touched on that on the podcast that you ran on Book of Jesus, so I don't want to, you know, I don't want to like rehash that again. So for the listeners, I'll, I'll be linking those up. But you, you brought up this concept that recovery is a stimulus, just like training, and people kind of need to be very careful how they apply recovery methods because again, they could dampen down particular adaptations. Just, just something I want to touch on real quick about that weekly pattern you mentioned that like about, about superstitions or, or like it's kind of a comfort thing. Uh, a concept that I've kind of been talking off a lot lately is this idea of adding certainty into our life. So you were kind of like saying, what well, you know, people eat the same thing every day, or mm. you know, they have certain habitual habits of every day. And really, what 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 I what I actually wrote about this a little bit that it, what 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 those sort of habitual habits do is that they add an element of certainty into our lives. Because I mean, the biggest question every single human has, whether they think about conscious or subconscious, is the question of like death. What the fuck happens after we die? And mm-hmm. we, we just have to come to a, an acceptance that we just actually do not know that, that 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 cloud of uncertainty will always be with us no matter what. So it's nearly like a subconscious thing that people just start to have these like uh, habitual habits to add elements to their lives. You know, I have breakfast at this time, lunch at this time, I go to the gym at this time, I eat this food on this day, and then it also extends itself out to certain belief systems people have, whether they be religious, religious beliefs, ideological beliefs, political beliefs, because it gives them more of a sense of identity and control of who they are. So I could see how weekly patterns. Um, are definitely an important thing in terms of these sort of microcycles for periodization schemes. The one paradox of that, though, is like where do we draw a sort of line between too, too much stability for us and enough variability? Because you kind of touched on Darwin. We do want we do want to be adaptable to within that scheme. Yeah. So yeah, the 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 search for the search for security and order uh, does come from 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 faith and from spirituality, and that does serve serve. To pacify uh, a, a certain aspect of that desire. However, mm-hmm. 
consider it more like this, that we have a, a set, uh, uh, resource within the, uh, as a whole, uh, your ability to improve an athlete in team sport, I, I firmly believe is determined by your ability to manage and control, uh, as much of the order as possible, but to allow their resources be applied to learning the disorder, uh, and to learn how to manage the disorder in the game as much yeah. as possible. Yeah. So by reducing the total stress holistically across the athlete, in other words, they know what they're going to do today, they know what practice is going to be, they know what the, the food is available, the, everything's laid out for them. You allow yourself then as the coach to stress the athlete uh, in an extraordinarily difficult manner or to an extraordinarily high degree the variability that you produce in practice. And by doing so, that's where your differential learning comes and it comes at such a heightened awareness because the player can draw, draw on all of their resources to learn in that moment of chaos and to learn in that, it, it, with that variability. That's what's incredibly important about the elite athletes. And it's easier as you go higher and higher because there are more resources available to the athletes and they have less things that they have to worry about. Then when they come to perform and to learn in practice, they can draw on all of their resources to learn and to refine their their uh, ability to execute. So these, again, are all stimuli. Yeah. But you choose or you facilitate where the the intensity of that stimulus uh, is applied. That's what good coaches do. And you can choose to have a little bit more variability in the preseason, in-season. This is ideally what you're trying to do. Chris, I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. Fergus, wrapping up here, um, kind of just quick fire. Could you could you maybe share with us your your the biggest lessons you've learned in your career so far at like the top three, and then just after that, could you maybe give like your your top advice to all the listeners? And that advice could be anything. Like it can be to do outside of the domain of sports preparation. It could be to do what, it could be life advice, it could be spiritual advice, and then and then adding on to that, what would your top resource be for all the listeners? Again, your resource could be anything. It could be a book, a podcast, a course, an audio program, and again, it could be within any domain. So. Your your biggest mistakes you've learned, or biggest lessons you've learned, your top advice and your top resources. I think the the three things that that I think are the the, the three things that are critical to success. The three most basic things are um, hard work. In that, and I mean I mean hard work in that you're prepared to suffer more than anybody else to 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 get whatever it is. You you must be prepared to do that. Um, it's not, again, it's to use the, the Terrence McSwiney quote, it's not those who inflict the most, but those who can endure the most who will succeed. So are you prepared from a hard work perspective to endure that, you know, a little bit less sleep? You have to study this, you have to read this, you have to do whatever it is. Uh, the second one is um, uh, honesty, a, a brutal honesty that not with anybody else but other than yourself so that when you can look in the mirror in the morning, you know, that you are honest enough to admit that, you know, this is an area of weakness. This is, this is my weakness. Sometimes it's what you see. Sometimes it's what everybody else is telling you it is, but you don't want to admit it. Uh, have you that brutal honesty to say, this is what I need to do? And sometimes, and most often they're not the things that you want to do. Um, and, uh, and then the, the third one is humility. You, if you don't have mm. that humility, um, and you have an, uh, an arrogance or it will lead to complacency. You're going to get caught. You're going to trip yourself up. You're not going to learn, uh, and you're not going to be able to help other people because it, this, our job is not about us. You know, it's not about, 
and that's why I don't like talking about me. It's about the, the learning. It's about the lessons. It's about helping kids. Uh, it's about helping athletes. It's about helping coaches. Um, and but, it, but it is about me, Fergus. It's all about me. <laughs> that's the, you know, Oliver Meal said, said it best one time. He said, look, what? he said, these people who talk about the guy who, you know, the guy who made an athlete, who made, the, who made this, he said, listen, the only person who ever made anybody were their parents. And, uh, you know, we're very fortunate. Like, I mean, I've been fortunate to be around some incredible players and some incredible athletes. I would like to think that, that I had some impact, but I didn't, I didn't make Frank Gore or Justin Smith or, you know, Nicholas and Alka. You know, I, I would like to think I helped them in some way, but that's at best, that's what you can, you can hope to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and if you're in this business long enough, you realize what you, you know, Vern, Vern Gambetta said it best one time. He said, he was uh, coaching one time, and Daley Thompson asked him to hold a stopwatch to time him in a race. He said, you know, Vern said, I didn't walk away and say I trained Daley Thompson, you know, um, you know, which is a it's a beautiful way of, of describing what some coaches do take as, as um, you know, an opportunity yeah. and exploiting it. But you have to know how big your, your impact is. And, uh, you know, I used to always have a, I used to always have a saying that <clears throat> when – uh, you know, you, you go to bed at night and you remind yourself that you're the best in the world at what you do. You wake up in the morning and you remind yourself that you're the second best and it's time to go to work. And that's, that's really what you, what you have to do. That's beautiful, uh, yeah. Al- Alvin and Vern are two good friends of mine. I was speaking to Vern Friday and I spent two days at Al's home back in 2015. I know Al's been a huge influence to me in terms of, in terms of programming them, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, in terms of his model of programming. But, uh, yeah, m- moving on from that then, um, your top advice then to any of the listeners, and it can be any life advice or, or not just coaching. <laughs> don't do what I've done. I, I, I don't. I, I, I don't really have any advice for, for anybody. I think uh, you know. I, it for me, I think it's just in you know enjoy what you enjoy what you do, and um, I guess yeah, I guess it's 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 not about you. It's about you know how can you help other people and, and yeah, yeah. how can you help other people. Uh, what, what, what's, what's, in, what's instilled that, that that seems to be a core core belief of yours that you're always putting the 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 well, in our case the athlete first but you, you seem, it seems to be like a core value in your life you seem to put everyone else first um i think i think that's what that's what life is life is about life is about helping other Certain other others. people you know it's it's about uh it is it is a sense of service you know i've been around I've been fortunate to meet some incredible people um, who've done incredible things for for society, for life, for 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 countries. And you, the the truly great ones are the ones who are humble. Like um, in terms of business, I've been there's a guy called Biff Poggi who coaches uh, um, in a, a school in St. Francis in Baltimore, and he's one of the most amazing people. But what he does for for young children um, in disadvantaged areas of Baltimore, where the wire was filmed. Mm with a football school and, and what he has done to try and save them and to take them away from drug addiction is just incredible. Uh, I've worked with guys who have uh, had to go to very, very dark places around the world and, and carry out very dangerous operations and some of them come back, you know, injured or, or in a difficult way and they've, you know, sacrificed far more than others so that, you know, we can go and do things. Uh, and, you know, I think growing up where I grew up and, uh, having been fortunate to be around some really successful people, it's those who, 
from a sporting perspective, it's those who are, who are the most humble are the ones that you respect the most and who have most, most often than not achieved the most. So I, again, and maybe, maybe most of all is from, from my parents, but I think that when you look around, if you really want to in sport find out who's doing the best, it's, you know, it's not the one, it's not the person making the most noise. It's usually the quiet person, yeah. you know, like the Belichick or whatever that's just winning on a consistent basis, winning trophies. Great stuff. And then in terms of your top resources, Fergus, what, what would your top resources be? And again, these resources can be anything. Uh, I think, I, I love to read, I love to learn, but I, I love people, and I love people who are interested, not necessarily interesting people, so, uh, you know, I met a guy years and years ago, uh, Gianfranco Posio, who's a, a dance instructor for the Guardian. Now, <laughs> when I met, when I met him, I had absolutely no interest in dance or, in, at, you know, and absolutely, but he, he himself was such, he was more interested in me, and through the conversation, I, he taught me so much. I learned so much from him. Um, so those are the kind of, um, you know, it's not that's not networking. That's just bumping into somebody who's fascinated, who wants to learn. Um, and and actually, I do have one piece of advice. Uh, one piece of advice that I have is I've never ever refused to reply to an email uh, asking for help. So uh, I did an interview with Paul Kevin a while ago. The number of emails I got afterwards were incredible but I made a point of getting back to replying to every single email of anybody looking for help because when I was starting out a lot of good people uh, a lot of good people helped me and that's the least I can do for, for the industry that's great stuff uh, Fergus very last one this is the very last one I promise well, <laughs> but, uh, so we're going to dinner and uh, I have my magical powers with me, and these magical powers allow me to bring people back from the dead. So if we were going to dinner and we had five available places uh, going to dinner, who were uh, the five people you would invite to dinner, dead or alive, and why? Five? Oh, Lord, I wouldn't get to five. Uh, I suppose... Um, Jesus? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess uh, Da Vinci, Werner von Braun. Um, Werner von Braun, really nice. Yeah, um, I think. Uh, uh, who else? There, there wouldn't be this. This this might or might not surprise you. There wouldn't be a sports person. There would be nobody. No, from no, the, wouldn't, that doesn't surprise me at all. No, it wouldn't be anybody from from the world of world of sport. And uh, probably the last one would be Michael Collins. That would be enough. Well, you've, sorry, you've, you, now me and you don't count, so there's seven of you. You can have two more spots there. <laughs> no, let's start with three. I'm, uh, I'm a man of simple pleasures. That's All the right. Best yeah. best so, well, it keeps, keeps the bill down anyway because it's on me, so I'm happy enough with that. Uh, Fergus, where can people find you? And also, what's next? What's next on the horizon for you too? So, finally, what's next for you? And then if people want to reach out to you, how can they contact you? Uh, you can share my, my email address, Fergus underscore Connolly at hotmail.com. Um, and I, I'm on Twitter. I don't even know my Twitter handle off by heart, but I, I, can, um, I, can, I can link that to the show notes. Don't worry. Sure. And um, uh, yeah, look, I'm, 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 we've got to finish the season here at the University of Michigan. We've uh, we've we're five and one. We've we've lost only one game so far, unfortunately. But um, yeah, we, I, I need to get this season done. I've got a a second book in in the works. And, Called Pro uh, Protocol. Is that what you're going to call it? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds and, great. Uh, that that'll be. 
you know, that will be a successor a hand- to Game Changer, won't it? Yeah, it'll be a it'll be a, a handbook, so to speak, that will, cool. um, you know, will, will be will just essentially share, you know, from a practical sense, the the recipes as opposed to the principles. Um, so I think people will find that of interest. But I, I I didn't want to write it first. It would have been the easier one to write, mm-hmm. but I wanted people to understand the the yeah. philosophy and the methodology behind, you know, how I've coached teams and prepared teams over the years, so that, you know, that it will make more sense when they see the see the protocols. Great stuff, great stuff, Fergus. That's absolutely outstanding. Thanks so much for your time. And I have to go, and it's getting late here for me too. So uh, I'll just wrap this up and I'll say goodbye to the offline. So guys, absolutely fantastic episode with Dr. Fergus Connolly. I'll link up everything that we spoke about in the show notes. And uh, be sure to check out his book, The Game Changer, and as well be on the lookout for his new book, which will come out probably sometime next year. And also check out James Smith's book that we mentioned, The Governor Dynamics of Coaching. Just got to make sure I say that right again, just because I don't want James to kill me. <laughs> but, uh, okay, that's it for now, guys. Uh, take care. Uh, I'll talk to you all soon, and stay strong. Thank you.